Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 24. In this episode, I talk with Nicole Patton Terry, professor at Florida State University and the Florida Center for Reading Research. Nicole and I discuss bidelectalism, oh, and my inability to say that word, uh, school research partnerships, and working with children who live in poverty. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And please don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today we have Nicole Patton-Terry, and I will have her start by introducing herself. Hi, my name is Nicole Patton-Terry. I am a professor in the School of Teacher Education at Florida State University and the Associate Director of the Florida Center for Reading Research. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you today, Nicole. We have known each other for a very long time, probably longer than we want to admit. And certainly not longer than we want to say on this video. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. But I am so excited to share your very cool research with the listeners. And I'm just going to jump right in with some heavy topics here. So you said in one of your recent papers, and I'm going to quote, there is evidence that when provided with rich and robust language interactions, bidialectalism and bilingualism can be leveraged as strengths to support literacy learning. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about these two terms, bidialectalism, that's hard to say, and bilingualism <laughs> in the context of that paper and how you came to this conclusion, which might be a surprise to some of the listeners. Well, the reason we wrote that paper is because there has been the suggestions of the parallels between kids who are growing up speaking multiple dialects of a language and kids who are growing up speaking multiple languages. And so one of the big questions out there, and I think it's an empirical question worth, worthy of continued investigation is how much are they the same and how much are they different? Um, and so what we were trying to help folks understand are the ways in which they might be the same, which would lead research in one direction, and ways in which they might be different, which would lead research in a different direction. And it would also mean that the instructional and clinical implications would be different as well. Um, for kids, so often people are, I think, sometimes more aware of bilingualism because it's, it's a little bit more um, easier to digest because we're talking about two languages, right? Yeah. And or more languages, right? right? And um, it's, it's a little clearer how those languages might be different, um, either in their phonology or morphology, in their semantics and all the parts and aspects of language. Um, and so it's a little, it's, we're a little further ahead, I think, in understanding how it is that kids who are growing up speaking multiple languages develop language and literacy skills. Right. Um, and often the core issue there is about proficiency in the language that you are speaking and the language you're learning literacy skills in, whether it be reading or writing, and whether or not they are the same or different, as well as how proficient you are based on your experience. When it comes to kids who are speaking multiple dialects, we know less about that. Um, in particular, the, the challenge there, I think, for us um, as adults, but also for kids who are growing up speaking multiple dialects, is typically we're talking about one language where speakers can understand each other. Mm. And so it's not always easy to notice the differences. And then if you notice the differences, act upon those differences for reading and writing. Um, so how do kids come to become aware 
that they might be speaking multiple dialects? And, and does that awareness facilitate the learning of reading and writing skills? Um, doesn't matter at all. Maybe it doesn't matter at all, um, especially if you if if we are to understand that everyone, um, certainly we're talking about American English, everyone is speaking a dialect of American English mm -hmm. to some level of density. And so if we're all doing it, then why are these kids different? Mm -hmm. And what is it that's so different about them that might matter for their reading and writing ability? So really in that paper, what we were really trying to ask those hard questions. If, if everyone's doing this, then why are they different um, from a sort of scientific perspective, but also from a more contextualized perspective about their lives and their growing up in these conditions in US schools? Can dialect differences, can language differences be leveraged to support them? Um, so I think in that quote, what one of the things we wanted to really impress upon folks is kids need rich and robust language experiences to develop reading and writing skills. All kids do. And it doesn't matter if you speak a different dialect. It doesn't matter if you speak a different language. It doesn't even matter what your level of proficiency is in that dialect or that um, second or third or fourth language. Fact is, kids need rich and robust language experiences. Thus far, that's what the research tells us. And if kids are provided with that, then maybe many of them will learn to read and write. Uh -huh. And and these these language differences and dialect differences won't be the primary thing we're talking about. Uh -huh. What are some examples of dialect differences? Um, so I, I study uh, or have had experience studying African American children who often speak African American English, um, and in the, in that particular dialect, you will see a lot of phonological or morphological differences. You might see substitutions of grammatical endings, not substitutions, omissions of grammatical endings. Um, so dropping your G's, you mm -hmm. might see um, a past tense ending. So yesterday, instead of saying yesterday, he walked to the store, you might hear children say yesterday, he walked to the store. Mm -hmm. um, you might, you see, uh, uh, a bit grammatical changes like um, the Mitchell uh, B, for example, like he always be running fast instead of saying he, he, he always runs fast. Um, phonological differences, you might see um, final cluster reduction. So instead of fast, you might hear fast. Uh -huh. But these sort of phonological and morphological um, differences are very much so rule governed. They're uh -huh. systematic. You can really, you can listen to a child's speech or in, you can see when these substitutions or, or deletions um, happen and notice that they are very much so tied to the grammatical structure of the dialect or phonological structure of the dialect that they're speaking. What makes it sometimes challenging is that I think it's uh, rare that you will find children who are 100% dense in using a non-mainstream dialect. And so it's their use of these forms is variable. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And so that can make it difficult sometimes for folks to to know whether or not children are speaking with a certain level of density that might then get in the way of reading and writing skills. Mm -hmm. But it could also complicate whether or not you're trying to figure out if a student has language um, impairment. Because often some of those variable uses of some of these same features are indicative of a language impairment. Mm -hmm. um, for, on the written language side of that, for example, the, the um, omission of grammatical endings is common as young children learn to spell. So you'll see children do that through first, second, third, sometimes even to fourth grade. Well, if you're using that dialect often, sometimes kids will, will omit those endings 
for longer periods of time, or it may seem indiscriminate when they're doing it. And so the challenge for the teacher is how much of that is related to the dialect and how much of that is just related to whether or not they really understand how to use grammatical literacy in print. Is there a pervasive view um, that depending on the dialect, it should not be used in school? Is there this view of, like how does the, so you mentioned everyone has, let me say this differently, so everyone has a dialect, that's just part of it. Mm -hmm. And it comes from your culture, your background, um, and maybe what's spoken in your home environment. And so mm -hmm. how, do, how do teachers, what is the view in terms of using dialects in a school system and how is that affected by the mainstream education kind of philosophy? Yeah. So the, in the U.S., there's there's considerable debate around whether or not you should encourage children to use their home dialects in schools, right? Um, some of that is absolutely tied to awareness, whether or not teachers are aware that children are using these non-mainstream dialects, which are not bad English or poor English right. or incorrect English. They're just differences. Right. Um, and so depending on... Um, the teacher or, or those in that school, their knowledge base, for some of them, this might seem like an error. Right. For some of them, they are fully, they may be fully aware that these dialect differences exist. And so now they're more concerned about risk. They're mm -hmm. concerned that children are using language features that might put them at risk. Mm -hmm. um, so they want them to change it, right? right. Um, and that has a lot to do with what they think people's perceptions of those children will be if they use those um, non-mainstream forms. Yeah. There are others who think, you know what, let's use it. Language is diverse, so let's use it uh, freely in school. So I, there is no one, I, I don't think there's any one sort of statement, position statement on that, but you see a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Um, the empirical evidence thus far is not sufficient for us to say that absolutely 100% we should be using dialect-informed instruction in schools. If we do that, then children's dialect differences will not impact their reading and writing. We simply don't have enough research to tell us that. So um, I, it takes me back to that initial quote, which is we do have significant evidence, empirical evidence, to suggest that children's reading and writing benefits from their robust um, enriched language experiences with adults in their environments at home and at school. So for me, we know that evidence is there. So let's make sure at a minimum we're doing that. And if we do that, we reduce the risk of having reading and writing problems. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of and sense. I think that, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think that part of that is being informed about language differences, right? So the, as you would about any other aspect of language, you're going to be informed about that child's language use and use that information to and leverage it to provide appropriate instruction in schools. So this is, to me, this is another indicator that we can use to support children, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's one that we need to teach. Doesn't mean it's one we don't need to teach. We just don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah, and I think it's also related to like this value judgment, right? So it's like, regardless of what the dialect is, this idea that it's less than or somehow like less educated and now we need to use this somehow mainstream. And I think that goes back to a lack of understanding of the changes that occur in language and the fact mm -hmm. that you can use different dialects depending on the culture and people you're with. And mm -hmm. that can also be something that you consider because I also think of, you know, from growing up in the Midwest, we had our own dialect as well that we used. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, I know another one that gets a lot of attention, it seems like is the 
southern like the creole kind of um, yeah. louisiana right like the approach there and so it's there's dialects everywhere but it's trying to understand um i think promoting less value judgment on yeah one being better than the other as opposed to just right that they're just yeah. language variation so just like in that and, and this i think is also true when we talk about kids who are bilingual there is um there are high prestige and low prestige dialects. Yes, absolutely. right. And so I, I often in my class use the example um, that we, depending on who it is, if you talk about Southern American English, which yes. shares a lot of its features with African American English, um, depending on the person, the perception, we can view Southern American English as being a very endearing dialect. Um, anybody who watches the Food Network and looks at Paula Dean and mm -hmm. she just feels like a grandma mm -hmm. in the kitchen making biscuits for you. We just love her and we want to give her a hug. Mm -hmm. But her language use from a pure language standpoint, we should all be concerned about our reading and writing if dialect is in the way, mm -hmm. right? And right. I doubt we have had any conversations mm -hmm. about her literacy skills or her children's literacy skills or her grandchildren's literacy skills, but her dialect use is very dense, right? right? So why are we not giving that same level of concern to her as we are to all of these African-American children who are doing the exact same thing, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. That, that is the part about this that the context of language that we often ignore in our research, but absolutely matters to how it's enacted out there in the real world. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to make sure we attend to that, I think. Well, it does seem like there's uh, some misperceptions that the African-American dialect is indicative somehow of children living in poverty, or there's some type of impoverished environment somehow, whether it's an English mm -hmm. environment or something that has to do with resources. So in the work you're doing, how, what are some of the big misconceptions about working with children who live in poverty, and how does this relate to minority culture and bilingualism and bi-dialectalism? Bi I'm going to try to avoid saying that word. <laughs> I think <laughs> multiple dialects. <laughs> I'm going to do that, or I'm going to get it right by the end. <laughs> So I think I think I think you hit the nail on the head there, and I I think that we do um, have a lot of these um, mis um, these misperceived notions about individuals who are growing up in poverty. Um, that really I you know really I think it I really think it is um, this notion of at risk. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Which at the end of the day is a term that is about stats, right? Mm -hmm. It's about whether or not you are more likely to in any category, right? But and over time, I think we've used that term so much, it's almost become watered down in its version and our understanding of it. And it's become misconstrued with at risk means you don't have it. Right. And, and now there's this one large group that all African-American children are at risk. All poor children are at risk. All bilingual children are at mm -hmm. risk. Um, and that term, although I get it, I, I get the stats behind it, but what it ends up being is a birthright. Mm. It ends up being, um, um, that these risks are now determinants. Mm. And I don't think that was the original intention, but that's where we are now, right? Which for me is extremely problematic mm. because that means that all my kids are now at risk. And I, I wanna be clear, my kids are gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, we have to move away from this notion 
of at-risk being a determinant. There are many, many children who are growing up in poverty, who are achieving well, and have everything they need to achieve well in school. There are many kids who are bilingual. There are many kids who are bi-dialectical, who are growing up with all that they need to do well in school for reading and writing. So the, I think what we have to move away from is, is taking these, these indicators of risk and talking about them as if they exist outside of some context that makes it a risk. It's the context in which these things exist that makes it a risk. Um, and if we can start to think about it that way, then I think we would do better by how it is we're trying to serve our kids, right? Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, it's, I mean, now don't get me wrong, it's, it's difficult. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, um, but the reality is for many kids who have these risks, our interventions or our ways of supporting them don't look very different than kids who don't have these risks, right? Um, so we do know a lot about how to support kids who have these perceived risks. What we maybe know less about is how to create conditions where these risks don't emerge in the first place, yes. right? Um, so we focus, and it, I think it's inherently a part of, of who we are as clinicians. Um, you know, I was trained as a person to work with kids with learning disabilities, so we're always in fix-it mode. Yeah. Kids are struggling, they're not doing things that we expect to see for them, so we want to fix it, right? Um, without forgetting that these kids are just developing, and they're developing as we would expect one to develop in the context in which they're growing up, right? So I, I tend to now, I'm trying, I'm playing around with and trying to understand notions of vulnerability uh -huh. and what are these, what makes a child more or less vulnerable to doing well in school. Poverty can create vulnerability, but disability can create vulnerability, right? Language differences can create vulnerability. There are multiple um, conditions that create vulnerability. But if you start to think about it in terms of vulnerability and instead of in terms of risk, it means you have to consider the context in which that makes this thing a vulnerability, right? And that means you, you have to think about things that are outside the individual. You have to think about um, factors like access, factors like quality. You have to think about factors that maybe predispose certain populations to risk or factors that um, maybe enable certain risks and how it is that these, these issues that are in the individual child as well as the as issues within their context kind of work together in the real world to create what we see, which is underachievement in school. And then if you can understand that, then the solutions become things that you focus on the individual, but things you also focus on in the context in which they live. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I think thinking about it as vulnerability instead of thinking about it as risk might help us disentangle some of these notions that are really, it's, it's just uncomfortable uh -huh. to figure out how to, it's uncomfortable to talk about, it's difficult to tease apart, but I think that a lot of that we do to ourselves because we just focus on these individual risk factors based on stats yes. instead of thinking about these numbers. These numbers are people yeah. in context. Yes. I love how you, you're thinking about this too, because when you think about the vulnerabilities and you start to think about what you can change, it makes it less predeterministic, as you said. And I think it also helps us to confront biases, because I think that sometimes these risk factors, even in the most um, well-meaning person, can come out as confirmation bias. Like, well, mm -hmm. that child's not doing well. That child lives in poverty. 
oh, that child's mm -hmm. not doing well. That child doesn't speak the mainstream English. Like it becomes almost this deterministic and also bias of, well, they can't do well. And mm -hmm. look, look what they're up against. It's, and it mm -hmm. creates this lack of, of, of actually changing or helping to change. But when you think about vulnerabilities and let's say you say, oh, okay, the child's in poverty, what could be a vulnerability? They could have food insecurity. How are we gonna then solve that in our school system mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, well, you know, they're in poverty. I don't know that I'm gonna really be able to make a dent in what they're mm -hmm. doing. You know, how can I be up against as a you know teacher educator, how can I really even help the child? Because that's an environment I can't change. Whereas there are lots right. of things you can do to help that then, uh, you know, focus on that context. I think it does make us confront some of the biases that we have and, uh, right. you know, think about how we can actually help to help children, not just say, oh, that's just, that's how the, it's going to be. Yeah. And I also think, though, it's going to take us out of our comfort zone, but yes. that means we've now got to start um, collaborating and working with folks in different fields than yes. we're used to working with, right? Um, if you're going to talk about nutrition, Right. There's a whole field for that. There's a science to that. There are people who know that and understand that. Um, and maybe those folks aren't working with the reading researchers of the world who understand reading development. But I, I'm sure they both can agree that if kids are coming to school with malnourished or without a meal from this weekend, that may have something to do with their learning in the classroom. So how can we, if we take both sources of knowledge, right, both powerhouse fields of research and figure out how to put them together, then could we get better bang for our buck in all of the work, the intervention work that we've done? Because I let, make no mistake about it. I think we've done phenomenal research in the field of reading, but I think that research to practice a gap that we see, part of it may be due to the fact that we are still working with the same usual suspects. Mm -hmm. and maybe it's time to, to yeah. break outside of that, right? I, I, I've been reading a lot in public health, a lot in translational science, trying to think about how can we take the advances that we've had and leverage it to push us to the next level. And I think one of the things that's keeping us from doing that is that we're still just working together to solve the problem. Yes. And the same great minds in the room, yeah. which are phenomenal minds. Mm -hmm. I think we might, if we understand the complexities of vulnerability, then it can't just be us. We, we, there have to be other fields that we're going to have to get to to inform these outcomes. And I know you and I share this uh, view of the child as the whole and thinking about context. And one, uh, one view I think we also share is getting the stakeholders in the room too. So a lot mm -hmm. of times there's been this hierarchy, right? Like, oh, we need to solve a reading problem. So then we're going to get all the top reading researchers in a room and they're going to talk about how to solve it. And then they're going to disseminate to schools how to solve it. But what's lacking there almost always is actually someone from the school system, someone from the context. Can yeah. you talk a bit about how you're trying to think about in your research and your partnerships, how to ch make that change too? Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Of course, preaching to the choir here, but I do think um, some of the greatest minds of reading research have never been teachers, Absolutely. you know, and, 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 and that doesn't mean they can't inform the field right. of teaching at all, right? That doesn't mean they can't inform what's happening in schools, but it is, it is, a, it is a significant proposition to ask someone to do some of the things we want them to do based on the science and the realities of being in a, in a classroom mm -hmm. or in a school building or in a school district, which exists in a state that is governed by lots of policies and lots of 
So it's not it's not an easy proposition to just say that science says this, so let's do it. Um, I, there there are many reasons why people make decisions about what it is that they do um, in any field, right? We can talk about climate change, we can talk about agriculture, we can talk about all these different places, and in particular these these hot button spaces of, of um, where there's a lot of uproar around what the science says, right? Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, people don't just make decisions based on knowledge. Right. So there's a way I think there, you know, there is an actual field about communicating science. <laughs> really? Do that. There are people who research that. Um, the National Academies of Science. It's just recently released a report called Communicating Science, Science Effectively. And in there, we, we talk about, and it certainly hit home for me, this notion of this deficit model of science communication. And it's, it's the widely held idea that non-scientists are, aren't doing what we think they should do on a topic simply because they don't know, right? right? So if they don't know, then our job as scientists, maybe what we need to do is figure out how to tell them better, right? And if you think about it, and particularly in the, in the field of reading, we've been doing that for a while, right? We've had um, the National Reading Panel Report, which is almost, is that, that's almost 20 years now. Yeah. And what followed from that was an amazing attempt to get the science into practice, right? We had um, funding initiatives like Reading First. We had a gazillion websites with all kinds of put out there information on the big five we had chat with mailers we had webinars people were going to conferences we we did a lot to try to push it out there in the world and 20 years later at least according to the nate reading scores are going down yeah. they're not going up yes. right and and if, if you look dig deeper in the numbers what you find is it's not the high flyers the high flyers are either going up or at least they're flat it's the kids who struggle the most for whom these benefits are not being seen, right? So that to me says there's something with the way that we're communicating science that isn't getting through. And we've got to figure out how to do that in what is now a very noisy um, field to talk through, right? We're not the only ones out there communicating science. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people out there who are are, I guess, mediators of the message mm -hmm. and their messaging isn't always the way that we would like to message things. We, even if they agree with us, it's not always the way we like to message things. So there's, there, there's a space in here where we've got a noisy field of people talking about what science says. We've got people who do science who maybe are not well equipped to communicate the science because it's not like there's a class on that right. in graduate school, mm -hmm. right? And then you've got, um, the, the general public, which even if presented with the facts, doesn't necessarily have to make a decision based on the facts. Right. So it's, it's a, I think it is a much more complicated proposition than we thought it was 20 years ago when if the proposition is to close the research to practice gap, we just need to give people the information, make them more knowledgeable, and they will certainly do what science says. I think we have enough evidence to suggest that's not the case. So I, I do think we've got to figure out a different way to communicate sciences to the masses, but we've also got to figure out a different way to get the masses to engage with us around this science. I think there's a two-way street in that, yes. this notion of much more robust public engagement.
It can't just be where it's a one-way street and we're communicating information. Robust public engagement means you're out there in the world, on the street, making sure that people understand this evidence and how it can be actionable in their space. And that is not comfortable, but I think it's where we need to start figuring out how to be because it is very clear that if we don't hold that space, others will. Absolutely. I think also just as scientists, we're used to, we're trained, of course, to like do the science, communicate the results, do the science, communicate the results. Mm -hmm. Like you said, now we're Mm -hmm. trying to think about how to communicate it broader, but I think what we aren't trained in well is listening. And we need to do a Mm -hmm. lot more listening to the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's uncomfortable because I think, you know, we're often put in that position as the experts and we're, you know, we go do professional development. So we tell people what to do and here's all the science Mm -hmm. you should do. Every time I do professional development, I, if it was up to me and I'm trying to think about how to do this, I would have a listening session first or somehow as part of it, because I don't think Mm -hmm. just sitting there, you know, preaching, what the science says is going to automatically get the science into practice because you have no idea of what the practice looks like and the nuances and the facilitators and the barriers. And so, but it's uncomfortable to listen to these things because we don't have the answers and it feels so uncomfortable to say, well, here's what the science says. And someone says, well, I don't think we're going to be able to do that for X, Y, Z reason. And then you're just kind of sitting there like, Oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what we traditionally do in those contexts, and I think we do, we're guilty of it because we set a very high bar for rigor. Yes. Um, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, right? Rigor matters because if you really want to know the answer, you need rigorous research and design to tell you that answer. So we can move away from guessing based on our own anecdotal evidence or experiences and get to knowing. So I'm not saying rigor isn't a good thing, but often if those conditions for rigor can't be met, then we walk away. Yes. Right. We go find context for where we can get it met. Um, but the reality is it's the very context in which rigor can't be met are the places that need the most help. So it's walking away from those contexts, we might get our scientific rigor, but we lose the ability to get that rigor back into those spaces. It's so, almost like we lose impact w- with rigor. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And I think there's a balance. Uh-huh. I think there's a balance and I think that it to me is the exciting part about the partnership work that we're trying to do is that it, if you're doing really um, well in um, design partnership work, you're in it for the long haul. So you're going to be there and you're going to grow in your understanding and ability to support them. And they're going to grow in their understanding and their ability to support you. So you might not be at a place of rigor on day one or year one, but you will get there if you all can hold on to each other, right? And that's a very difficult part of partnership. But if you can figure out ways to get that mutual collaboration and that trust and respect that comes from those kind of partnerships, I think that's where you get to see those positive outcomes from a researcher being in the room on the ground with practitioners and everyone has equal footing. Tell us about, you're now at the Florida Center for Reading Research. Can you tell us about one of those partnerships? Because I know one was recently publicized. I would love to hear more about it and how, how you believe that's going to help, as you mentioned, bridge this gap between research and practice and to mm-hmm. us, you know, meet the goals we have to help children. Yes. So we just, as of like, exactly, I think one week ago today, oh. um, got a, a formal signed partnership between FCRR and Leon County Schools, which is our local Uh, public school district. And it is just that as a research practice partnership, we're focusing on reading achievement and school success. 
Um, our initial areas of focus are the areas they identified as, as where they wanted support, which was specifically around reading instruction, early learning, and special education, which is great because we have people here who know how to do those things. Yes. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah. Um, but that, but I will say what's also exciting and, and uncomfortable and daunting is there are other areas that they want support in, in special education. They want support on tier two and tier three literacy interventions for secondary students. Mm -hmm. We simply don't have enough research right now um, to answer that question for them. But what they're excited about is the ability to partner with someone who's gonna help them figure it out, yes. right? So, which we gotta figure it out because. I tend to not work in the secondary world, right. but the reality is we have a national and international network of people who yes. do, right? That yes. should be part of the resource that a partnership brings to the table, right? Yes. So I, I am confident that together we can figure out this challenge for them. Um, but I'm really, I am really excited about it. I've only been um, in Tallahassee for about 18 months now. I, what is, um, I guess really unique and impactful I think about this partnership is, you know, Tallahassee is a college town mm -hmm. and college towns are notorious for their disparity, right? So they aren't unlike many other college towns, just like the research triangle in, in um, North Carolina, like mm -hmm. Charlottesville, UGA, UVA, like Evanston and Northwestern. I think that many, um, really top-notch universities exist in towns where there are huge disparities between the haves and have-nots. Yeah. Part of that, I do think, is just an unintended consequence because universities are big. Yeah. They are like their own little cities and they're like a very large business. Yeah. And that means they have a lot of resource that they need to run efficiently and effectively. The good part of that is you bring all of these this resource to a place, right? You bring this faculty, you bring these students, you bring excitement, you bring jobs, you bring all of this to a location. But at the end of the day, often those resources aren't just directed at that community. And they really can't be because a really prominent, successful university cannot devote all its resources to its local place. It wouldn't be prominent just like it does so there's a tension there right and with that tension means that sometimes your backyard doesn't look as good as it should mm -hmm. right absolutely despite all of that resource mm -hmm. being there so i am particularly excited because we we're in this place in this this um geographical space where this disparity exists um where there's an an abundance of resource if you view re if you view universities as being resources to their community and i do so there's an abundance of resource there there's an abundance of disparity there and there is arguably one of the greatest institutions for reading research sitting in their backyard right so it can't if we're going to figure out this issue of how to use research and innovation and engagement to solve these problems of practice related to reading, I don't know any better place than to figure it out, right? Absolutely. We've got everything here. Absolutely. So, I, so I am excited to try to figure out how to leverage this unique context, which really does not exist anywhere else. It doesn't exist anywhere else. How can we figure out the one-two knockout punch, right? Yeah. To take all of this resource and talent and bring
phones to bear on these very real, but not in backyard to do the science that's going to be required to figure this out, but also do the engagement, this public engagement to try to figure that out and also figure out how to be innovative. How, what's the new, what are the new frontiers that we need to push us forward? I think we can do all of it in this context. So that for me is very exciting. I am so excited about it, too, and I'm going to be watching it because I have something kind of similar happening here uh, with a school district. And, uh, you know, many people also told me, I don't know if you can really do that and still have the rigor, as you mentioned, or how are you going to get your NIH grant done in this context? Mm -hmm. And actually, it's been the opposite of people's concern. It's mm -hmm. actually made my science 100 percent better. It's more relevant. It's more real. It's I think it will have a greater mm -hmm. impact long term quicker. And that's because I'm mm -hmm. actually able to listen and engage in this way. And then I think, too, when I'm then in those rooms with scientists and I feel lucky every time I am, then I can convey, even though we often don't have the stakeholders, I feel like at least I can be a bit of a voice for the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like that happens, too, when now I'm working with this, this district and then they're in their meetings, they can be a voice of like, well, I was just talking and this is some of the mm -hmm. science coming out. Because you're right, it's really about creating this relationship and relationships are hard so yeah. I, I commend you and I think it will be I'm hoping a model that others will look to and say wow okay they're doing it and like you said you're setting up the stage and the framework that maybe you know in thinking about it innovatively that maybe others can do it um, because that's also been a real shock as I joined the, the academy going to different universities and seeing the discrepancy between the university and then what's happening mm -hmm. in the backyard it's you put it so well I'm yeah. really mindful of our time. I think we've covered so okay. many great topics, but I do <laughs> want to make sure I ask you the final questions I always ask everyone. But you might have answered it. I'm okay. not sure. So what are you working on now you're most excited about? I think we just talked about I it. Think so too. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what is super exciting. And I think to your point, what you just said that um, what I hope is that we figure out the way to create the model to do this, right? If you look at there's this um there's a um an organization called the National Network of Education Research Practice Partnerships. It's a, it's a relatively new group, about five years old, of folks who are doing these research practice partnerships around the country between universities, sometimes it's universities and local communities, sometimes it's not. But what you often find in those meetings, and I enjoy them immensely, is that content people like us aren't there. Um, that these are left to, these are partnerships that are often um, devised by people in policy. Um, and, and I think that's a great thing, but I think we're missing a lot of this conversation around what do we do about teaching reading and what do we do? That's not in those conversations, right? And so I really am excited to try to figure out the way that folks like us can be engaged in these partnerships in more systematic and sustainable ways, right? That it doesn't just depend on Tiffany, who has decided to work in a certain way, knows this teacher or this yes. principal or this superintendent. And therefore, it's going to work as long as Tiffany is there. Yeah. But as soon as Tiffany yeah. decides to not be there, then it goes away, right? Or for that matter, that person in the school district decides to not be there, then it goes away. We've got to come up with ways that are much more sustainable to do this kind of work. And I think that means training the next generation of scholars to do that. So I'm looking forward to working with students, master students, doctoral students, postdocs, junior faculty. If, if you get your senior faculty, to set the stage, to create spaces where we can do this kind of work in our big NIH grants and big IES grants or whatever it is, 
then we create pipelines for other people to work in this way and you don't have to sacrifice your tenure to do it. So I, I am really excited with trying to figure out how we can make this a model for how we do this work. That's fantastic. I would say that's what you're most excited about, right? <laughs> those models. I've never even heard of that resource. And I feel like I've been doing this quite some time. So I'm excited to share that with the listeners too and put it in the resources. Absolutely. And, wow, that's that's really fantastic. We'll get uh, we can even invite Paula, uh, who is the executive director. Maybe we can invite her on. She is a Florida State alum. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, okay. Then that's that's happening. That is happening. <laughs> Take two, Paula. That sounds amazing. I would love that. That would be great. Absolutely. Okay, so the next question is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Or both? It's up to you. Okay, so when I was a child, I think it was Where the Wild Things Are. I used to always love that book, and I read it over and over and over again. So I definitely remember reading that book. Now, though, I have to say it's hard to say because there are so many more um, diverse children's books out there that have diverse characters and authentic stories and the books are really representative of what their real lives are like and, and, and I mean the Lola books for starting school or Soulway by Lupita Nyong'o or um, Hair Love is another one that's had a lot of flyer out there right now that a father African-American father is doing his, his daughter's hair there's just so much more out there so I would direct your listeners to a, a website called Maya's Book Nook. It is a website that has been created and curated, curated by one of our own, Dr. Lakeisha Johnson. She is on faculty at the University of District Columbia. She's also affiliate faculty here with FCRR. But what she does is she reviews all of these diverse children's literature books. Awesome. And um, she has an Amazon bookstore. So all the books that they look at, you can go to Amazon and find them so you can purchase them. Um, it was really inspired by her daughter. She has a young daughter and she wanted to make sure that she was reading books that were representative of their lives. And now, I mean, there are hundreds of books there and, and we just, we can do that so much better than we used to do it. So instead of one, all, get them all. Oh, <laughs> get fantastic. All the and what a great thing for the authors too, to have a spotlight on their work and really get it yes. out there. Oh, yeah, I, I love it. So. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, Nicole, what a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Check out www.seeherespeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.